The Roman Emperor Constantine issued the Edict of Milan, which made it legal for a person to be a Christian for the first time since Christianity began. Effectively, it was ending almost three centuries of state-sponsored persecution of the church. And then 67 years later, largely in response to Arianism, a false doctrine that was creeping its way into the church, the new emperor, Theodosius I, issued the Edict of Thessalonica in 380 AD, making Christianity the official state religion of the entire Roman Empire. And in that sweeping and truly astonishing move by the government of Rome, Christianity went from being counterculture to mainstream culture. And in the centuries that followed this profound change of status, what turned out to be a cataclysmic shift for the church in the fourth century was considered by most to be the triumph of the church over the world. In retrospect, many now consider that defining moment to actually be the triumph of the world over the church. Because for the first time in history, you could profess faith in Christ without it costing you anything. Without having to change anything in your life. You could now claim to be a Christian without there having to be any real meaning or significance to that claim other than for the purpose of social acceptance. Because as a Christian, rather than being an outcast of society for following Christ, you are now simply being a responsible and patriotic citizen of Rome by claiming to be a Christian. Because, of course, it didn't make sense anymore. If you wanted to be accepted by the culture, it didn't make sense to claim to be anything but a Christian. And out of that came the rise of what we know today as cultural Christianity, which is what most of us here were raised in. And the problem with cultural Christianity is that it breeds in its followers a fundamental misunderstanding, a misinterpretation, really, of the church, of what the church is and how it functions in society and what the consequences are for being a part of it. Because, look, the gospel of Christ is subversive by nature. It's disruptive, right? Which means the message of the church is subversive, which means our mission in this culture is subversive. It's disruptive. In other words, we are supposed to be different. We're supposed to live our lives against the grain of the rest of society. We're supposed to live our lives in a way that doesn't make sense to an unbelieving world. The Apostle Peter said, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, we are God's people. And being one of God's people means being called out by him to live a different kind of life, the one uh, different than the one you would live if you were not one of his people. We, we're supposed to be different, called out, set apart, right? That is God's expectation for his people, for each one of us to live our lives called out by him and set apart for him, set apart from the rest of the population, not separated but set apart or set in contrast with everyone else. Why? So that it would be blatantly obvious to those who do not follow Christ who the followers of Christ actually are and just how different life is when you choose to follow him. Because the more we try to bring 
Look, the more we try to bring the church into a state of harmony with the culture around it, the more the church begins to look like the culture around it. And the more the church looks like the culture around it, the less effective the church becomes at making disciples. Right? Because why would anyone who is not a part of the church be interested in the life of the church when it looks just like the life they already have? And so... It's of the utmost importance for every follower of Jesus Christ to understand what your life is actually supposed to look like when you're called out by God because it is decidedly not the same life you had before. No, it's different. Living for Jesus doesn't look the same as living for yourself. It is different. Okay? Being called out by God is more than simply believing in Jesus Christ and then hanging out with your Christian friends on Sundays. That's living an entirely different kind of life, one that makes no sense to the unbeliever. And listen, there isn't one of us who gets a free pass here. There isn't one single Christian on this planet who God looked at and said, yeah, you know what? I created all these people and called them out to serve a great purpose on this earth, except you. You are the exception. For you, it's enough to just believe in me. Maybe hang out with some other Christians on Sundays. No, sorry. There isn't one example of that in all of biblical scripture. Every single one of us has been called out to live a very different kind of life, different to the point that when people encounter us, there should never be any doubt in their minds that we are followers of Jesus Christ because it is unmistakably clear by simply watching how we live and behave and talk and conduct our daily lives that we are markedly different than everyone else. And, it's, and listen, it's easy to blame the church as an organization for looking too much like the secular culture today. And if you come here regularly, you know I'm plenty critical of the church as an organization at times as we should be. But it's easy for us to point to that, the church as an organization for looking too much like the secular culture today. It is far harder to take a long, honest look at ourselves individually in the mirror and then consider how our lives are actually different, if at all, from the rest of the world. But that's exactly what we need to do. Because it's not the organization of the church or its structure or its size or whether we meet in big buildings or in people's homes. It is none of those things that separates us from the rest of the world. No, it's how each of us lives our lives day by day that separates us from the rest of the world. The fact is, listen, the church looks just like the world when we look just like the world. But God called us out of the world to be different. English theologian John Stott once said, instead of always being one of the chief bastions of the social status quo, the church is to develop a Christian counterculture with its own distinctive goals, values, standards, and lifestyle. A realistic alternative to the contemporary technocracy which is marked by bondage, materialism, self-centeredness, and greed. Christ's call to obedience is a call to be different, not conformist. Such a church, joyful, obedient, loving, and free, will do more than please God. It will attract the world. It is when the church evidently is the church and is living a supernatural life of love by the power of the Holy Spirit that the world will believe. It's exactly what we see happening in Afghanistan right now. 
Because God called us out of the world to be different. Why? So that the church would distinguish itself from the unbelieving world around it as a testimony to the glory of God at work in his peculiar people. The Apostle Paul said that God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. 2 Timothy 1.9. He wrote that to Timothy from a Roman prison in regard to the church in Ephesus, just after he wrote the same message in his letter to Titus in regard to the churches in Crete. Paul was writing from different circumstances to different people in different churches at different times in different contexts with the exact same message. Because Paul understood that as Christians, no matter where or when or how we are living on this earth, every one of us was called out by God before time itself to be different, to be set apart for our good and for his glory. And so in the second chapter of this letter, we're going to see just what that looks like as we continue our sermon series, working our way through Paul's letter to Titus. And just as a brief uh, review, in case you missed chapter one last week, Paul is writing to Titus, who Paul left behind on the island of Crete to put the churches that Paul had planted there back into order because there were leaders in those churches all over the island who were beginning to actually lead people away from Christ through false gospel teaching and actually false gospel living. And so this letter is an instruction manual for Titus, for the churches in Crete, and indeed for us today on what it looks like to be called out by God, the different kind of life that is, and how to model and teach that life to one another as members of his family, the church. So let's pick the story up where we left off last time then at Titus chapter 2. We'll begin by reading the first 10 verses. So Titus 2, 1 through 10. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us." Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering. That means don't steal from your boss, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. So Paul opens this second chapter with, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine, meaning, hey, Titus, in contrast with what everyone else is saying and doing in the church right now, instead you should teach what accords with sound doctrine. And what Paul's talking about here is more than just teaching God's word through the proclamation of it, by the way. He's also talking about living out God's word. So he's building on the theme from the first chapter last week where he stresses the power of the word of God preached or proclaimed. And so when you read this opening to chapter two in the original Greek language, the idea behind the phrase uh, teach what accords with sound doctrine. It becomes very clear. It has to do with right living, 
and right thinking, right? Not just right thinking, but right living. And that shows up in several other translations. If you're reading the Living Bible, uh, it says, speak up for the right living that goes along with true Christianity. If you're reading the New Living Translation, it says, promote the kind of living that reflects right teaching. So you get the idea. When Paul says, teach what accords with sound doctrine, he's saying, speak it, yes, proclaim it, but also live it model it and hold others accountable to do the same which is why in verses 7 and 8 he says show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works in your teaching show integrity dignity and sound speech don't just tell people but show them and sound speech that cannot be condemned he says so that an opponent may be put to shame they're going to hear it and they're going to see it in your life in other words don't just say what is right titus do what is right Live it out and then hold others accountable to do the same. And of course, he touches on several specific areas that need improvement, which, uh, by the way, these aren't just random examples. This wasn't like uh, Paul's shotgun approach to every sin he could think off uh, of the top of his head. These were actually specific problems that were plaguing specific demographics within the church at Crete. So, for example, when Paul says older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. It's well documented that it was a common failing of older women in ancient Roman and Greek culture to be slaves to wine. Okay? Alcoholism was a major problem with older women in that culture and even more so on the island of Crete. And so Paul emphasizes a specific problem among a specific group of people within the church. And he says not only uh, should they do what is good, but they are to teach what is good and so train the young women. Okay, so in other words, do what is right and hold others accountable by teaching them to do what is right as well. And so he goes through all of these specific problems that are rampant in the church and then in verse nine, he circles back around to a word that he uses more than once in the first section of chapter two and it's actually the one problem here that sums up all of the others and that's the word submission. The word submission, hupatatso, uh, in the Greek, it's the same verb that's used to address Christian in all, Christians in all sorts of uh, other situations in the New Testament. So when he says bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything, that applies all throughout the, Old Te- I mean, the New Testament in many other situations in context other than bondservants and masters. In other words, the need For the people of God to submit to one another was not unique in this situation to slaves and masters. It was and is, according to Paul, the duty of all Christians in response to appropriate authority in their lives, right, within the church, within our families, within our friendship structure, however it is, right, it it is the duty of all Christians in response to appropriate authority in their lives, proper submission, and the lack of it, Paul says, was what was ultimately causing the problems within the church. The believers were not willing to submit themselves to one another, right? Whether, again, that was in their marriages, their families, their work, their teaching, or in their service to the church. And it was tearing the church and their individual lives apart. And so Paul says the same, uh, the people of God must submit themselves in the same way one to the other, so that in everything, he says, they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, meaning when God's word is manifested in how we live our lives. When we not only believe in the gospel, but we actually live it out, that's when the gospel comes to life through us. And there are people, by the way, 
who try to make the case that all of this teaching in these verses we just, really this whole chapter, that it was only specific to the time and culture that Paul was writing in in the first century, that it doesn't apply to us in the same way today. The problem with that argument is Paul's entire teaching here is rooted in Paul's own words, in sound doctrine. He's talking about the gospel itself, which of course applies just as much to us today as it did to them then. Okay, so uh, look, there's, there's no two ways about it. Living the different kind of life that God called us to live means you are called to a life of submission. Of course, that's, that's not a very popular teaching these days in large part because we've confused the meaning of the word submission with another very different word. So uh, listen, before we talk about what, what living a life of submission looks like, we're going to take a minute or two here to make sure we understand what that actually means because in our modern vernacular, we use the word submission almost interchangeably with the word surrender, which is why we don't like to talk about it, right? Because, listen, we haven't been wired by God for a life of surrender. That's why when we talk about wives submit to your husband, we don't like that today because in our minds, it's wife surrender to your husband. That's not what it means. But we've almost made those two words mean the same thing today. But that's not how God wired us. And so we, we don't like the whole idea of submission to begin with because we're confused about what it actually means. Look, this is a, this is a terribly serious mistake in the church today to confuse submission with surrender because those are two very different things. And I've talked about this before. So some of you have heard this already, but it bears repeating because of how profoundly important it is to our understanding of what it means to live for Christ. Because listen, we talk all the time in our churches about surrendering our lives to Christ, don't we? Of course we do. Look, Jesus, if he's anything, is our king. We can all agree on that. Scripture is clear. Jesus is our king. As Christians, we serve Jesus our King. So why would we surrender to our King? That doesn't make any sense at all. In fact, the only people who surrender to a King are his enemies. Not his own people, right? No, a, a King's loyal subjects don't surrender to him. They submit to him. And the difference couldn't be any more important. In fact, the Greek word for submission was the word used in ancient literature to describe a company of soldiers as they stood at attention or kneeled before their king and saluted their commander. They were declaring as they stood there or kneeled in front of him that they were ready to take his orders. That couldn't be any more different than surrendering to their commander. The only person who surrenders to a king is his enemy. A soldier doesn't surrender to his commander. For all of you who have been in the military, right? A soldier doesn't surrender to his commander. He submits to his commander. So listen, contrary to popular belief, the life of a Christian is not one of surrender. At least it's not supposed to be. And yet if you've grown up in the church, you've no doubt been taught to surrender your life to Christ. In fact, I'd wager you've heard that as a Christian probably more times than you can remember. 
It is one of the most common and oft-repeated ideas in contemporary Christendom, surrendering your life to Christ. We're told to lift our hands as a universal sign of surrender to God. We sing songs about surrender. In fact, it's hard to find a set of worship songs in church these days that doesn't include at least one call to surrender. And look, many of those are great songs. And by the way, I think they're certainly well-meaning. The problem is we are never told in all of biblical scripture not once to surrender our lives to Christ. It is not in the Bible. In fact, the concept of surrendering your life to Christ is not only not in the Bible, it is unbiblical. Nowhere does the Bible teach us to surrender our lives to Christ. What the Bible does teach us over and over and over again is to submit our lives to Christ. And the difference is profound. When a soldier surrenders, he bows before the enemy king, lays his weapons down, and says, I give up. When a soldier submits, he bows before his king, picks his weapons up, and says, what are my orders? Can you see the difference between the two? Surrender is an act of resignation. Submission is a call to action. That's why God never calls us to surrender. Because the last thing he ever wants us to do is give up. No, he wants us to get up, pick our weapons up, and get in the fight. Yet we wonder why so much of the church is so weak and listless and ineffective today. It's because we're all too busy surrendering our lives to Christ. We think we're doing something great, something sacrificial, when actually it's just the opposite. We need to stop surrendering our lives to Christ. We need to stop teaching that in the church because the easy thing to do is surrender, lay our weapons down, and then remain in a peaceful state of resignation while other people go out and fight the good fight like our friends in Afghanistan looks the infinitely more difficult choice by far the choice that requires deep personal sacrifice and ongoing commitment is to submit yourself to Christ because that means you have to get up and get in the fight which is hard it's messy sometimes you get bloodied and beat up sometimes you have to do exceptionally difficult things you have to take ground you have to go to battle with the enemy you have to tear down strongholds and snatch others from the fire in fact the only thing you never do when you're following Christ is surrender the overwhelming message of the Bible to Christians is never surrender Yet because the idea of surrendering all has become the mantra of the modern church, that concept has permeated nearly everything we say and do to the point that total surrender has become the ultimate goal for the modern Christian. And all the while, God is beating the drum of war calling us not to surrender, but to submission. Submission to follow our king into battle, to stand up and fight for the gospel, to fight for those who cannot fight for themselves, to fight for holiness in our own lives and in the lives of others, to fight for the truth, to fight for his kingdom to be established on earth as it is in heaven. And I can't help but picture God as his own army of followers surrenders in mass before him. I can almost hear him saying, what are you doing? I never told you to surrender. 
I told you to put on the whole armor of God and take up your weapons and go fight the good fight. Yes, I'll go before you. Yes, I will fight for you. Of course, I'll never leave you or forsake you, but I want you to follow me into the battle. Surrender is not the way. And listen, when surrender becomes a part of the culture of the church, the church becomes feckless, impotent, and weak, which is not God's design for us. And you want to know why this is probably more important for us to understand right now more than ever before in our lifetime. It's because the culture around us is becoming more and more hostile toward the kingdom of God by the day. And if our posture is already one of surrender, then when the heat gets turned up on the church, and it will, we'll lay our weapons down and let the enemy walk right over us. You understand, I'm not talking about fighting against the world. We're supposed to rescue the world. I'm talking about fighting the dark spiritual forces of a very real enemy who has this world in his clutches. We're supposed to fight for the world, to save the lost by snatching them out of the fire, as Jude, the brother of Jesus, says. But listen, we can't do that if we're constantly resigning ourselves to a wonderful state of peaceful surrender, which without a doubt is a peaceful way to live your life. Sure, your enemy won't fight you when you surrender to him. So yes, surrender is an easy way to achieve peace in your life as long as you don't mind being subjugated by your enemy. The problem is, that's not God's will for his people. No, his will for us is to get into the fight. As messy and risky and difficult and demanding as it may be, our king is calling us to stop surrendering and instead submit to his orders and get in the fight. That's what Paul, by the way, is calling Titus and us to do for the church. What that looks like is us fighting for each other when no one else will. It's holding each other accountable, loving each other enough to speak the truth even when the truth is hard to hear. It's walking through the fire with your brothers and sisters when life gets hard so none of us, none of us walks alone. It's standing up with and for each other when we're fighting giants in our lives. It's thinking more of others and less of ourselves. It's going where he calls us to go even when it's difficult or dangerous or requires great sacrifice. It's getting involved in each other's lives. It's giving more than you take. It's building each other up instead of tearing each other down. It's fighting for our children. It's fighting for our marriage. It's fighting for the church. It's fighting for the gospel. It's fighting for one another. And it's the opposite of surrender. Submission is saying no to surrender and yes to God by picking up your weapons and getting in the fight that he's called you to fight, which means fighting for one another, which is infinitely harder than surrendering to him. Because when you surrender, then there's nothing else for you to do. That's easy. This is why actually getting involved in the lifeblood of the local church is so important. I mean, sure, it's messy. Sure, it's painful. Sure, it requires sacrifice. All kinds of things that don't feel good sometimes. But we're not just called to believe in Jesus and then hang out at a church service once a week. No, he's calling us to submit to his command to be the church, not to go to church, 
to be the church, which means actively fighting for the church, for each other. But you can't fight when you've laid your weapons down in surrender. Scottish pastor Alexander McLaren put it this way. He said, the true position then for a man is to be God's slave, absolute submission, unconditional obedience on the slave's part, and on the part of the master, complete ownership, the right of life and death, the right of disposing of all goods and chattels, that's possessions, the right of issuing of commandments without a reason, the right to expect that those commandments shall be swiftly, unhesitatingly, punctiliously, and completely performed. These things inhere in our relation to God. Bless the man who has learned that they do and has accepted them as his highest glory and the security of his most blessed life. For brethren, such submission, absolute and unconditional, the blending and the absorption of my own will in his will is the secret of all that makes manhood glorious and great and happy. In the New Testament, these names of slave and owner are transferred to Christians and Jesus Christ. Let's finish the story for today. Verse 11 to the end of the chapter. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Verses 11 through 14, I think the, those uh, four or five verses here uh, are read every year on Christmas Eve in churches that use the liturgical ch uh, calendar. They do that because these verses are a beautiful description of the incarnation of Christ with one difference from most of the other passages of Scripture that describe the incarnation, that being these four verses focus more on what appeared, namely the grace of God, than they do on who appeared, namely Jesus Christ. Now, it's true that Jesus, uh, his appearing was the grace of God in flesh, so there's no conflict between this passage and others on the incarnation. It's simply a different expression of the same event. The point being, these four verses highlight not just the person of Jesus Christ, but the point of Jesus Christ. So when Paul says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, he's saying, listen up, church. There's one gospel of grace that is for all people which means God doesn't have a gospel of grace for some and a gospel of law for others and a gospel of self-justification for others. No, all people find salvation only by the grace of God. And if you're a member of the family of God, that grace is training us, Paul says. That word uh, training, patio, in the ancient Greek is the description of what a parent actually does for a child. So it, it refers to the entire training process of raising a child, teaching, encouragement, correction, discipline and on and on. So Paul's saying, look guys, the grace of God is not just a gift in your life. It is a gift, but it's more than that. It is your teacher throughout your life. 
And what does grace teach us? Paul says to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. And to what end? Paul says it's to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Okay, The grace of God in our lives is not just a gift for salvation. It is a gift for salvation. But it's also a teacher for sanctification for living a life of holiness. Charles Spurgeon, who referring to this very passage of scripture said, thus you see that grace has its own disciples. Are you a disciple of the grace of God? Did you ever come and submit yourself to it? Okay, the, the different kind of life that God calls us to live means you're called to live a life of holiness and yet holiness is not achieved in our lives by avoiding certain taboos or by living a certain way according to a certain set of rules. In fact, there's absolutely nothing that we can do in our lives to make ourselves holy. In fact, the most religious people in the history of the world have proved that beyond the shadow of a doubt. Okay, you can follow every law and every rule and live the most religiously disciplined and morally pure life and still not be holy. Okay, well then, how can anyone ever be holy. Hebrews 10, 10 through 14, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The word sanctified there is the ancient Greek word hagiatso. It literally means to be holy. So sanctification is holiness. Keep that in mind as we read this again. We have been sanctified, made holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. That is precisely what religion and religious behavior without Jesus Christ can do for you. Absolutely nothing. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, those who are being made holy. Do you understand he's talking about you Believers and followers of Jesus Christ. We're called out, set apart, made holy. How? Only by the offering of blood. The blood of Jesus Christ that he willingly gave for us so that we might be holy. Doesn't mean that right now we're all sinless. It means that Jesus Christ has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He's fully earned our holiness for us by his sacrifice. And so it is by his grace that he makes us holy. And then he teaches us how to live a life of holiness that mirrors who we are in Christ. Hebrews 13, 12 says, Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify, to make holy the people through his own blood. So we're called clearly to a life of holiness when we're called out by God. And since that holiness can only come through the grace of God on our behalf, not by way of our own righteous deeds, that must mean then that we can now live however we want to and it doesn't matter, right? Because Jesus makes us holy. Whew. No, actually no. 
We're called to a life of holiness. Jesus makes us holy. What is there left to worry about? Well, I'll let the Apostle Paul answer that question. He said, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Romans 6, 1 and 2. You see, when we're called out by God, the calling to live a different kind of life, that would be a holy life, that's not the means by which we are made holy. It is rather our response to the God who has already made us holy. So God calls us out. We don't call ourselves out. God calls us out of surrender to this world and into submission to him and his kingdom. And then by his grace alone, we are made holy. And our response to that is to live a life that reflects that holiness. So our holiness is what Christ offers to us. Our holy living is what we offer back to him in response to what he's done for us. So then what does holy living look like for us today? Well, the answer is everything that we do, this is simple, everything we do that brings honor to Christ is holy living. While anything we do that brings dishonor to Christ is unholy living. This is a simple litmus test for every one of us to follow when it comes to living a life of holiness. So when you're having a conversation with someone, ask yourself, is this conversation honoring Christ or is it dishonoring Christ? Is this relationship in my life honoring Christ? Or is it dishonoring Christ? Is this activity I'm engaged in, is it honoring Christ or is it dishonoring Christ? This opportunity before me, will it honor him or will it dishonor him? Are the choices I'm making daily in my life, are they honoring Christ? Or are they dishonoring Christ? How are you choosing to respond to the gift that Jesus Christ has given to you? Because look, how your conversations and relationships and activities and opportunities and, and choices, how, how all of those things make you feel, right? At any given point in your life, how those things make you feel, that has absolutely nothing to do with whether or not they honor Christ. And yet that is all too often the litmus test that Christians actually use today to determine the content of their conversations and their relationships and their activities and opportunities and choices. How those things make them feel instead of whether or not they actually honor Christ. So look, before you have that conversation, before you get involved in that relationship, before you make that post on social media, it's getting hot in here now. Before you engage in that activity, listen, before all of that, check your feelings at the door because your feelings will get you into big trouble. Your feelings can lead you astray. Your, your feelings can betray you in the worst of ways. In the Garden of Gethsemane, just before his own death, Jesus prayed, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. He's known what he is there to do. He has accepted it and he's gone there willingly and yet he prays, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. In other words, Father, this doesn't feel good to me. I don't want to do this. So if there's any other way, please release me from this requirement. And then he immediately continues, nevertheless, not my will. Not what I want, but your will be done. 
Luke 22, 42, you see Jesus' feelings could have easily led him away from the cross and the sacrifice that has saved us, but he betrayed his own feelings that he might honor the Father's will instead of his own, and we are called to nothing less. Don't rely on your feelings to guide you through this life. Rather, if you will measure every conversation, if you will measure every relationship and activity, if you will measure every social media post and every choice that you make based on how Christ-honoring it is, you will actually at times have to betray your own feelings to do what honors Him, which is not something that comes naturally to any of us, which is also why doing so screams to the rest of the world that there's something profoundly different about you, which is exactly what this world needs to see when they see us, okay? Living a life of holiness honors Christ, it serves the church, and it testifies to the rest of the world that we are who we say we are, which is what every single believer and follower of Christ is called to. There are no exceptions and nothing less, which is different, of course, it's different than what the world expects to see because most people are living their lives for themselves. Listen, the gospel of Christ, it's different. It's subversive, it's disruptive, which means our message is disruptive. Our mission to this culture, it's subversive, it's disruptive. In other words, you and I, we're supposed to be different. We're supposed to live our lives against the grain of the rest of society. We're supposed to live our lives in a way that doesn't make any sense to an unbelieving world. Because we're God's people. And being one of God's people means being called out by him to live a different kind of life than the one you would live if you were not one of his people. So look if the church today looks like the rest of the world, it's because we look like the rest of the world. The problem is God called us out of the world. He's called us out of the ways of this world to live a life of submission and holiness. He's called us out to be different Let's pray.